Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by an award-winning cartoonist from UCLA Law to Pearls Before Swine. Now drawing his first graphic novel, Trouble Town, we welcome Stefan Pastis. Thank you. How are you doing? Absolutely great, Stefan. Let's go beyond the mic. You've been a litigator, a cartoonist, and now author of the graphic novel, Trouble Town. Do you believe growing up in California, you'd be where you are today? Oh, no way. I mean, I drew I drew when I was a little kid, like a lot of little kids, and I was particularly inspired by the comic strip Peanuts. I mean, I was, when I was six or seven and I saw that, I just fell in love. And I knew from that age, literally at that young of an age, that I wanted to be a cartoonist. But I got older and I realized, man, the odds of that are so slim. So they would get like, I don't know what it was, 20,000 submissions a year and accept one or something like that. So it's just not a career path that you can count on. So I just basically kept cartooning as a hobby and became, of all things, a lawyer. (laughs) It's just not the usual uh, career path. But yeah, that was my route. You love Peanut so much and you met Charles Schultz. He thought you were a process server. I really stalk him, I guess is a better term. I live in Santa Rosa now in Northern California where Schultz lives. People call him Sparky, so you may hear me say Sparky. Uh, That was his name to all of his friends. Sparky had breakfast every day at his ice arena in Santa Rosa. And my wife, Stacy, was originally from here and she told me how to to get there. And this is before cell phones and all that. And so I just took a day off of work and I, I went to the ice arena. And sure enough, he came in and sat down and had breakfast when he was done. I walked up to him and I said, uh, hi, Mr. Schultz, my name is Stefan Pastis and I'm an attorney. <laughs> and he, he thought he was getting served with a subpoena. Like he, he, like his face just turned white, like just white. And then I said, no, oh, I'm all, I draw. I also draw. <laughs> and then he goes, oh, he goes, do you have your stuff with you? And then I, then you just get nervous as heck. And I, I, I said, actually, I do. It's in the car. Just bring it. So then he just went through it and, and critiqued it and gave me tips. And But, you know, it's funny. I really, I don't even know why I brought it. Maybe that was in the back of my head. But when he is looking through, I mean, I was so amateurish at the time. When he was looking through it, it it's sort of like you tell Ted Williams you play baseball and just, you know, I enjoy baseball. And he goes, oh, let me look at your swing. And, you know, and then you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, this, is, this is bigger than I thought it was going to be. So, uh, but no, he was super nice. And then, you know, as luck would have it, I ended up working for the Schultz family after Sparky died at their studio in Santa Rosa. And then I ended up writing the first animated peanut special, I think, after Sparky for Warner Brothers. And, like, I mean, it's such a crazy journey from the kid who just loved peanuts, you know, and if you had told me the path I would take, I I don't think I would have believed it. How did that make you feel having that honor? Uh, Like otherworldly, like, you know, there's, there were all these crazy moments. I mean, another one was I signed with my syndicate right when Sparky's career was ending because he was dying and he had just, uh, my editor was his editor and she said, Hey, I'm going up to see the ice arena show and Sparky may or may not be out of the hospital. So I said, uh, oh, my God, that's great. Can I go? She said, yeah, come with me. So she took me. And sure enough, Sparky's there. He's just come out of the hospital. His daughter, Schultz's daughter, says, you know, I've seen this show a hundred times. Do you want my tickets? And I said, yeah, sure. So I go from not seeing Schultz at all to going to the show to getting tickets that are Sparky's booth. So it's me and Schultz and our wives. I mean, I'm sitting next to my hero. You know, whoever your hero is in life, that was mine. 
I watched the show with him and it was, it was incredible. He, he left at intermission in tears. He was crying. They played your good man, Charlie Brown. And he started crying and he pointed to the ice and he said, you do that. You do that for the next 50 years, I guess, meaning do a comic that people like. And it, it, that's no commentary on my work. I don't think he had even seen it. He just knew I was a cartoonist that had just been signed. But for me to hear that from him at that moment of his life, you know, it was one of those strange things. And then he died 12 weeks, 10 weeks later. So, you know, I mean, how do you count on that in life? It's such an odd series of intersections that I was fortunate enough to have. It's wild. Cartoonist Stefan Pastis from Pearls Before Swine and a new graphics novel, Trouble Town, joins us beyond the mic. What makes Trouble Town the perfect book for these times? You know, it's uh, it's my first graphic novel. I've done, obviously, there are Pearls books, which are just a comic strip collected. And I did a kids' book series called Timmy Failure, which is a chapter book. So it's like uh, it's like Wimpy Kid, a couple drawings per page, but mostly text. Uh, this one is really more like a comic book, you know, six panels per page. So the entire thing is drawn. And it was just really, when COVID hit, I just, you know, it obviously shut down everything for everybody. So I couldn't travel and do the things I normally do. So I just got a pen and paper and started drawing this little squirrel who had originally an addiction to caffeine <laughs> and the publishers made me change it. <laughs> so I had to become sugar and he's nuts when he's on that sugar. So they cut him off. And when they cut him off one by one, the buildings in town start blowing up. So yeah, it's a pretty wild story. And I did it like I do all of my books. I really do it to entertain myself. And it turns out when I do that, I'm apparently like an 11 year old kid because people that <laughs> seem to like it. So yeah, it's fun. Just crazy characters, a wild plot, and the people that have seen it seem to like it. So yeah, a lot of fun. Stefan, how did the law help you as you practice your craft today? I'll tell you how it helps me. I hated the job so much that I never want to have to go back. So I tried really hard. That's it. <laughs> That's how it affects me. You've noted in many other interviews that you've been influenced by Peanuts, as we've mentioned before, Calvin and Hobbes, yeah. Bloom County, and many others. How did those cultural pieces of art change the way you draw and change you? Oh, man. So, yeah, Schultz is really the oxygen. Like, that, that every the pacing and the tone, it all comes from Schultz. And really, almost all strips now have at least some influence of Peanuts. Then as a teenager, you know, Bloom County, Doonesbury, um, Calvin and Hobbes, boy, Farside. They all showed what you could do. You could push the limits. You could, you know, the subject matters got broader, edgier. So those did that for me. And then really Dilbert in the 90s, I more or less just mimicked that three-panel style. I mean, I, as a lawyer, I would just go to this bookstore, read through the Dilbert books and kind of uh, figure out, reverse engineer, like, why is that funny? And it helped because Pearls was really only a three panel strip, at least the first 10 years, um, more or less. So that came straight from Scott Adams. So they, they all play a part, but so does everything. I mean, so, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoons when I was a kid and early Saturday Night Live and boy, early Letterman had a huge influence on me. Uh, Laurel and Hardy. Uh, yeah, just all, all that goes into the mix informs who you are. Now, are we talking Letterman's nighttime show or the rarely seen daytime show? 
I didn't, I never had the good fortune of seeing the latter, but yeah, definitely the early, early late night. I mean, that, that was just so like, you couldn't believe what you were seeing, like the, the man under the stairs, like the Chris Elliott character and the Velcro suit and all that stuff. And it, it just seemed like something that wasn't ready for the air. And that made it brilliant. Like it just, it seemed like it just handed the studio over to this guy and, you were seeing something that was often so unpolished, but purposely so. So I think it just broke the third wall. And yeah, that real, I think that I, I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people who ended up doing comedy for a living would tell you how jarred they were in a good way by that early Letterman stuff. I mean, it was, there was nothing like it. I mean, that was, that was incredible. Speaking of breaking taboos, breaking that fourth wall, it's forbidden, but you do it with such unadulterated <laughs> yeah. joy. You're like yeah. a kid in the candy store with mom's credit card. <laughs> yeah. What makes breaking the fourth wall so funny for you? I don't know. You know, I think of it, I think of myself as the kid who read the newspaper and I think like, what would that kid like? And, and like, so I've turned the strip upside down. I've slanted it. I've squished it vertically, horizontally. Uh, I've traded strips with other people. I've traded dialogue with other people on April fools. One year, me and get fuzzy and Foxtrot all ran the exact same strip <laughs> to, see, to see what would happen. I had a campaign to get Ziggy, you know, the character Ziggy to wear pants. Cause I thought it was weird that a grown man doesn't wear pants. And I think, I think there was a hunger strike. And then the best part of that was I contacted the guy who does Ziggy and I said, Hey, at the end of this series I'm doing, um, I'd like to have the characters win. You know, they, they, they forced um, <laughs> Ziggy to put on pants. And he, the guy was nice <laughs> enough. I think it was Tom Wilson Jr. He was nice enough on the day my series ended to put Ziggy in pants. So, wow. um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. So I, I've just done a ton of stuff like that. And then, of course, I'm a character in the strip. And uh, that's created all sorts of weird Oh, yes, stuff you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because one year I had myself get divorced and thrown out of the house. And I think I still live on the porch of the house in the strip. And so that started all this talk, like, am I really divorced? Which I'm not. I didn't think anybody would care. But the Washington Post cared <laughs> and ran an article that I think was headlined, like, past this in real life, not divorced or something like that. It's so bizarre. But, uh, yeah, it's it's funny. Cause, and because sometimes I really do. Like, sometimes... Sometimes the stuff that happens to me in, to me in real life, I do put in the strip. Uh, but sometimes it's just pure fiction. So I understand why it's hard to tell. But for me, it's all just fun. I love doing it. Cartoonist Stefan Pastis from Pearls Before Swine and a new graphic novel, Trouble Town, joins us beyond the mic. Stefan, you take your readers through dark times with your own twist. Right. From using masks to hide from social media to making some of the most God awful puns. <laughs> Thank like you. Roxanne, you don't have to put on the red light. Oh yeah. That's a popular one. How do you find balance in your work? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, so it's funny. Everybody has a different thing. They like, there are some people for whom those Sunday puns are the highlight of the strip. There are some people I know from doing book tours who they just look away when they see that. coming. <laughs> there are some people who only, who only like the crocodiles. There are some people who think they're the dumbest characters in the strip. So it's all over the board. And I think what you learn after doing this for, gosh, it'll be 20 years in December for, from doing it for that long, what you learn is if you listen that closely to reader feedback, you're just going to get whipsawed back and forth. Like you're, you're just, you're going to please no one. So at the end of the day, 
what you have to do is, is make yourself happy, make yourself laugh. And if you do that, everything else kind of follows. Yeah. It's almost best sometimes to work in a bubble. Like with, with, um, with the trouble town book, I think why it came out as it did, which I think is pretty good. If I'm allowed to say that is because I was so isolated. Like I was just making myself laugh. And so there were no other kind of voices in my head, like do this, do that. I just had this freedom. And it really does make creativity sort of enhanced. I, I love it. Well, Timmy Failure was your first book, and it was turned into a movie for Disney+. Plus. Will there be a Timmy Failure 2? <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, so Timmy, Disney uh, made a movie out of the first book, so it's called Timmy Failure Mistakes Were Made. I was lucky enough. So normally when you're the writer of a book, believe it or not, when it gets made into a TV show or a movie, you're the first person kicked out of the room. <laughs> and the, the reason why is, contrary as you would think that would be like it's because you have no experience in that world and it's a much higher cost to produce that stuff so they want experienced people so i kind of threw a wrench into everything by insisting i be the writer or at least one of the writers and i was lucky enough that the director named tom mccarthy who did that movie that won the academy award uh, spotlight I was lucky enough that he let me write it with him and we became good friends and we wrote together for two years and then I was on set every day. And that, that was like one of the highlights of my life, by the way, seeing, seeing something you wrote turned into a film. It's, it's mind bending, especially the day that they built a house. They literally built a house so that a truck could drive through it, uh, which they did. And I was standing right there when it happened. And all I could think when you have these 200 people trying to make this stunt go right, is the only reason this is happening is because I wrote this on page one of the first Timmy book. This car crashes into a house. And so that is a, that is a, a true thrill. Why is Timmy so endearing to kids? I guess it's just because I think when I'm right, I, when I write, I'm 11. Like I'm not constrained by sort of adult thoughts. I just, I write what amuses me. And I, I think that's where my, my head is at. I just, I still laugh at the stuff I laughed at when I was 11. So yeah, that's why, like, in Trouble Town, like, I screw up all the, I, I purposely misnumbered the, the chapter numbers, <laughs> like, they go 4 to 12, back to 10, like, it's just, I thought when I was a kid, like, that would be fun to, like, to just break all of those, all of those rules. Yeah, and there's a, I won't spoil it, but there's a thing at the end where you find something out that's also uh, odd and unusual about that book, but I, I just love doing that stuff, it's just, it, it, bottom line is this. If you're not having fun writing it, how can you expect anybody to have fun uh, reading it? I, I think that's what it comes down to. It's time for the Rocky Nate. Eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. <laughs> I'm ready. Favorite album of all time? Oh, uh, Joshua Tree. Why? Uh, I listen to it more than anything when I write. But I but I will also put in Sticky Fingers by The Stones and Astral Weeks by Van Morrison. Those, those will be my top three. Uh, the, the latter two, cause I listen to them probably the most, but yeah, I judge music by if I can write to it and where the streets have no name and all those are, they're really great to write to. I tend to write to moodier music. Sorry. I bet, the, I bet this eight thing has a faster speed. <laughs> Rocking eight can be at any speed you want. As long as you allow me the time to go beyond the mic, we're good. I like the rocking eight. Are they all music related? Cause this is good. Best place to think in San Marino. Oh, San Marino, boy. I would take a long walk down Huntington Drive or go to Lacey Park. Oh, the Huntington Gardens are pretty good. You really did do your research. 
San Marino is a tiny town for the people where you live. It's a tiny suburb of Los Angeles. Uh, uh, that's where I. That's where I was born. Yeah. Has your wife Stacy ever looked at a strip and said, "Yeah, I don't get it." <laughs> I felt like I knew where you were going, and I did. Yeah, she has. She has done that. Yeah, she has a different sense of humor in me. Sometimes she laughs at the strips I don't think are great, and um, sometimes she doesn't laugh at the ones I really like. I'll tell you one funny story. When I put in the strip that we were getting divorced, I told her, and she knows I'm a, I'm a goose, so she paid no attention. I don't think she cared. So fast forward eight months, because that's how far ahead I generally am of deadlines. This woman calls her. She's the woman, a realtor, who sold us our house. And she says to Stacey, she goes, hey, I read kind of what's happening. And just want you to know if you guys are thinking of selling <laughs> that I'm here for you. <laughs> and Stacey has no idea what she's talking about. And then it dawns on Stacey. She goes, oh, wait, are you are you getting the news from the strip? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, yeah. She goes, oh, yeah, no. That's just a comic strip. <laughs> like, that's, that's not true. <laughs> so, so I like the thought that I messed with her life in some way. <laughs> she had to pay attention to it. That makes me laugh. When you lose touch with the world, what grounds you? Oh, going back to the room I write in, putting music on, lighting incense, and pacing. What kind of incense? Uh, I get, uh, I can never remember the kind I get because there's 40 available at the grocery store, so I get all 40. So I wish I could read. I always tell myself, remember one you like, but I don't do it. And then turn the lights off for the most part and just use the window light and pace. because That is grounding myself to doing, uh, that's me telling myself, do what you love. Do this for, for you to entertain you. Pretend that no one will ever see it. Some of the best stuff ever created. I, I really pay attention when people talk about stuff like this. And I can't tell you the number of times they, they, they make this comment. We just did it to entertain ourselves or you, you like remember early SCTV that, that way. I remember that comment by them. They gave us the studio for those uh, in your audience may not know it. Canadian show, uh, 1980s, maybe late seventies ran for five seasons. You had to stay up past their night live generally to watch it. But they, the comment was made. Uh, it's like they just gave us the keys to the studio. They didn't care. We were on so late. And that's when you make your great stuff. You know, write like no one is reading. Uh, just just you. Entertain you. And it really frees you up. Time to go deep. The three best writers of all time are... Uh, okay. Boy, this is... This is this fighting words. Tw okay, I'll put... I have to put Twain in there because he had a huge influence on me. Uh, um, I, I made a pilgrimage to see his desk in uh, Hartford. I, it may not be a popular answer, but... I reread him all the time, Hemingway. And he, I wouldn't put him in the greatest of all time, but just because I reread this every two to three years, uh, it's called A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, a writer from New Orleans who died way too young, who wrote, that book is the best humor I've ever seen in a novel, Confederacy of Dunces. It is, it is brilliant. It is, it was kind of the inspiration for Timmy. It's what I read right before I wrote Timmy. Yeah. So I'll put him in there for that, for that reason. Uh, and also Hunter Thompson, another big influence on me. What's the one thing you do that makes your kids laugh? <laughs> I, I purposely use words wrong and say stupid things. And I just do it to, uh, yes! <laughs> 
Remember the remember the expression uh, "raise the roof." Yes, uh, popular. I don't know, ten years ago. So I would talk to my son Thomas, and I'd say, "Push up the ceiling, push up the ceiling," and he goes, "That's not, that's not, that's not the," <laughs> and it drives him, it drives him crazy. So I just <laughs> that that amuses me to be that dad. Yeah, I like that. If you could change one thing in your life, what would it be? Oh man. My eyesight. I have terrible eyes. Like literally uh, almost past the point of correction and it drives me bonkers. And it scares me so much. You don't want to lose your eyesight. So if I could improve my eyesight, I would improve it. Now everything else, you know, I really, I'm so fortunate. Like I, how many people do you know who wrote down in a second grade paper what they wanted to be when they grew up and they became it? Like I, my, I literally wrote syndicated cartoonists when I was eight because I had read it. In this in this book on Sparky on, on peanuts uh, the term and I knew what it meant and I became it like I got to do exactly what I wanted to do you know m- minus the ten year detour <laughs> the lost years <laughs> as a lawyer <laughs> don't talk about the dark times Desmond. yeah the the wilderness years yeah yeah other than that but yeah oh I grabbed those ten years back can that be another thing I changed I want those ten years back we talked in the pre-interview your joys of traveling last question of the Rocky Nate favorite place you have visited oh man I will put it as a tie between Vietnam and India both magical places that fully engross you and engage you and you are immersed. The most exciting trip though, during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, I got to go to both on USO trips. Uh, and that was pretty, uh, incredible. And then gosh, anywhere in Eastern Europe, I've, I've loved everywhere I've been. And I've been to a lot of places. I'll tell you my tip. Here's my tip on traveling. Cause I am a, a nutball when it comes to this. All I do is research trips. I do it every day. You have to, it's almost like a meeting a person. You'll have a much better experience with a person if you accept them for who they are rather than imposing yourself on them. So, you know, I love New Orleans and people will go to New Orleans and they'll go, they'll hate it because they just want it to be safer or they want it to be less dirty or whatever. And if you approach it that way, it's not going to work because you're not going to make it those things. So if you accept it as it is, this quirky, strange place with wonderful neighborhoods, and it's the genesis of so much of who we are and our music and culture, it will open itself up to you. It, so it's, it's almost like you, you have to travel with an open heart to the places you're going to. And, and it's wonderful. It has this, you'll have the same positive experience you do when you do that with a person. That's my theory. It's time for the back half with Stefan Pastis beyond the mic. Stefan, when did you think you found success? Oh, man. That's a great question. What was the moment? I'll, I'll tell you the moment. I actually said this in the, at, the, at the time it happened, which is odd. But when I was signed with United Features to be syndicated, I thought I was done like with the law immediately. But they dropped me. United dropped me after they signed me, saying there's no way this will sell to newspapers, believe it or not. And I was crushed. And they came back nine months later and said, hey, we're going to try an experiment, which they do all the time now, but had it before, which is to put me online and see what kind of reaction it got. They put it out there, got a decent reaction. I don't know if it would have got me syndicated. Probably not. 
And then one day, Scott Adams of Dilbert fame, at the height of his popularity with all the number one New York Times bestsellers, out of the blue, just told all his readers, this is really funny, you should go read it. And I remember I printed out that and I ran upstairs and I showed Stacy and I said, if I ever make it as a cartoonist, if I ever succeed, this, this is the moment. This is the moment that it happened. And it was like the, the hits that day, just a thousand percent increase. United, the syndicate saw that they signed me and I was off and, and running. But so and that's just the two part. That's the first way I know. And then the, the second way you know is you go on a book tour and you can get 600 people in a room. And it, it's so mind blowing because it sounds odd. Like I know that my strip is read by people. But I don't see it. I just I just go to a room in this condo every day in my studio. It's a very solitary profession. So when you go somewhere and there's 600 people, it's it really it's 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 incredible. I'll tell you one quick story. <laughs> my we're in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I was there for this festival, this comic festival, and my buddy Emilio, my best friend, <laughs> is walking down this main street. We hadn't met up yet. We flew in separately. He's walking down the street and he sees this big long line at this theater and he's like, Oh my god, this is cool. Some there's a concert or something, I'll you know, I'll check it out. So he goes, he walks the line and he sees their line for me. And he goes, he goes, Why would they do that? Why 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 would they do that? I always makes me laugh. So yeah, and I, I have that same reaction. Like it still is mind blowing. It's fun. It's the best kind of fame because your face isn't famous. You can go anywhere. Nobody knows who you are, but you're conditionally famous. If you go to a signing for that hour, you're famous. And it's, it's fun to experience that in these short bursts. It's cool. Is there someone you'd like to help like Scott Adams helped you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have done it before for uh, some webcomic guys. and um, uh, But now, you know, it's funny. People who are good it's kind of unlike when I came up. They get that exposure and they get it. They get it quickly. I wanted to tell everyone to go read this strip called Cyanide and Happiness, which is really dark and very funny. But I went and I looked on Facebook one day and they had nine zillion followers. And I was like, oh, it's different. Because in my day, if a syndicated guy like Scott endorsed me, endorses you, you're, you haven't made. But nowadays, these you know young cartoonists, they walk right around that and they just reach the audience direct. It's just a different, it's a different world where the endorsement's not quite the same. You go traveling and do signings at bookstores. What makes mom and pop bookstores the best? Oh man. It's really the knowledge of the person selling you the book. Like there's this woman named Patty at Copperfields where I'm doing this signing in a couple of weeks and she's in the kids section. And I, I go there all the time and I watch when like a parent brings in their kid and they, um, She'll say, what is your, what is your daughter like? She likes this book, that book. And Patty gets a sense, okay. And I think this, she'd like this book. And so they recommend it. Now, Amazon can try that, but they don't have that. Like that, that's an individual thing. So that, that's why I always tell people, I tell them two things. One, you've got to subscribe to your local newspaper, a local newspaper. Because if you're not paying for journalism, you will one day pay for not having jurisdiction. Like you, you need someone gathering local news. I, I'm a big proponent of that. Secondly, I tell them, I know Amazon's easy. I shop there just like anyone else. But when you can buy books from your local bookstore, because 
when that bookstore goes away, uh, it's a real loss. It's a great place for the community to gather. I do most of my signings at indie bookstores. They're fun. They're great places to be, great for kids. Yeah, all of that. In fact, there's a, there's a section in this brand new book I'm doing, not, not Trouble Town, but one I'm literally going to work on today, where this little girl loses her little toy store. It's just an individual toy store. And I sort of modeled the guy who works behind the counter after Patty at that bookstore, like someone super knowledgeable that you can't get, you know, from a chain store or something like that. And that was sort of my homage to those great indie bookstores. Yeah. Look at that. I've been, I've been flippant, odd, serious. This has covered quite a number of moods here. Did you ever draw a strip and think, now, man, I crossed the line. Uh, I've done, here, here's what I've done. Close. I see it in the paper and I go, oh, I crossed the line too late. <laughs> That's eight months later. I, yeah, yeah, I know. It, it really only hits me later because you actually see it in print. You're like, oh, yeah, that shouldn't be there. Like that, that's just, that's just, some, of the, some of the stuff I've gotten away with is, uh, is rather incredible. But, um, I don't, you know, that goes back to your question about the other cartoonists. All those guys I like, they all, they all push the, the limit. People forget, but Schultz in the 50s was revolutionary. Like, that was, he expanded the comics page tremendously. So, um, yeah, you sort of have to pay it forward in a way. I feel like if I can get away with that, some kid coming along in 20 years can do something even better. So, yeah, you got to take some risks. It's so fun if you're not taking risks. Gardena Stephen Passes joins us beyond the mic. What comics do you miss that aren't out there anymore? Well, boy, every, for everybody, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, for sure. And I was lucky enough that he actually drew my strip for a week uh, a few years ago, which is an incredible experience to watch Bill Watterson return to the comics page, and he does it in your comic. So, Calvin, for sure. Farside has come back with a few strips now and then. Larson has done a few in the last couple of years, but Farside I miss. Um, yeah, and of course, Sparky. I mean, Schultz is... Yeah, he was my he was my idol. It's funny, you know, if I'm ever really stuck, I guess this is kind of odd, but I'm kind of odd. I'll take a drive. If I'm ever stuck for ideas, sometimes I will take a drive and I go to the cemetery where Schultz is buried. There's this, it's really pleasant. There's this waterfall and there's a couple of benches by his grave. And I just sit there. There's something about it that feels right. And uh, yeah, I love that. You're, I, I like to think of it as like it's this river, you know, and you're, you're part of it. And you, you know, you were in there and there were creators before you and there'll be creators after you and you take from it and hopefully you contribute to it. Yeah, this constant flow of ideas. I'm always kind of reaching back, I think, for those inspirations. What does it take to be a good cartoonist? Writing. It's the writing. I, I tell people who write to me and ask that question, just draw two stick figures and uh, write something, write a joke for it, and hand it to somebody you know, not your mom, because she'll laugh no matter what. Hand it to somebody you know and see if you can make them laugh. Because it's the writing. I mean, the draw. If you have the drawing too, like Watterson did, then you're golden. But really, it's the writing. Because it's hard. It's hard to do a three-panel strip or a four-panel strip. You got to be. You got to lay out the premise in that first panel, and joke is frequently not even in the last panel. So it could be premise first panel, joke second panel, comment on the joke third panel. So that takes real brevity. 
that's why the script wasn't that hard for me. The movie script, like real writers, like, you know, people like Faulkner and Fitzgerald, they really struggled with screenwriting because they're so good with novels and um, the ability to use all those words. But a screenplay demands something different, uh, like a comic strip. It's all brevity. You got to strip it of adjectives and adverbs. You just don't have enough time to do all that stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's the ability to write with brevity. Why will Trouble Town resonate with kids? Because uh, it's goofy and breaks the fourth wall. I think kids would read it and think, uh, oh, you can do this in a book? That's pretty fun, especially when they get to the end. Yeah, it's got that, it's got that sense. The 11-year-old me, that, that's the feeling I get. And that's what I have with the first Timmy book, too. So that, that instinct has generally served me well. It's just fun, and the characters are goofy, and uh, it's got all the stuff I loved when I was that age. Now, how many times have you gotten in trouble for something you've drawn, even from your wife oh, or your boss? Yeah, uh, between 50 and 100, I would say. Like, r- real seriously, three or four. But yeah, I've been in trouble uh, a lot. I mean, I've angered nations. I've been threatened with death. I've had stalkers. I've had editors uh, call and demand. I speak to a reader who's in tears. <laughs> what? <laughs> I've had, yeah, the whole, the whole, the whole range. I had a polka group um, write a very angry letter. I, uh, cyclists hate me throughout the country. Yeah, it's incredible. You, you'd be amazed how seriously some people take stuff. I always want to say it's just it's just a cartoon rat. Like it's only it's only ink on a page. Like he's not he's not doing. There's no real life here. He's not in real life. So, Mom, yeah. the rat's taunting me. Yeah, it's it's wild how wild how mad you can make people. And I mean, you, you, you learn all the third rail. I mean, by now I avoid a lot of them cause it's such a hassle, but like, so name a political party, a religion. Here's one that would surprise you. A disease, uh, mention a disease, physical or mental, you're dead. Like it's, it's over. Don't know why that happens. That one always surprises me. Sex, drugs, uh, some of the usual you would expect. Do you know how many taboos you've broken in your strips? I, I hope all of them. And if not, I'm going to get them all by the time I'm done. How has social media changed the way people see comic strips? It changes the way I write strips. And not dying like newspapers. Yeah, it's um, it's this incredible thing. And I'm, I really debate this because this might be hurting the strip. I don't know the answer to this. You immediately see what resonates with people when you post a strip on social media. And it cannot help but impact how you write. So I've done more strips in the last five years chasing that than I did before. But I don't know what's right. Maybe if I had been doing that before, my first in my first 10 years when there wasn't social media, maybe if I had had a system like that where I could get immediate feedback, I would, be, would have been better those 10 years. Or alternatively, maybe by chasing that, I'd make the strip worse. I, I really go back and forth forth on that because at the end of the day I have to lead I know I know that but it is very hard to not chase likes as long as you do it your own way and you're doing what makes you laugh social media will for better or worse teach you that which does not resonate because ultimately it's the same test as we used to use which is the refrigerator test like does someone like this enough 
to cut it out and put it on their refrigerator to show other people, A, I think this is funny, or B, this is my life. Well, now the refrigerator test is everywhere. Does somebody repost this or retweet this or whatever? So you can't help but, but chase that. But I don't know. I don't know if that's good or not. I mean, one of the greatest strips of the 20th century that has stood the test of time is called Crazy Cat. I don't think that would have gotten many retweets or anything because I think most people would have found it odd and sometimes almost incomprehensible, but it's beautiful and great. Yeah, so I, that's a really tough question, and I struggle with it every day. Rat was the first character you came up with for Pearls Before Swine. <laughs> Some people hate the alligators. <laughs> yeah, right. Some people have favorites of the goat, right. and the pig, and the rat. Which is your favorite? <laughs> yeah. I think it depends It depends on the day you ask me. I would say Rat is my favorite only because he's the easiest to write for. He's the... He's the closest to that voice in my head that, you know, says the things you want to say all the time, but you, you can't because you're in a civilized society and you don't want to go to jail. Pig is the other one. I mean, it depends on the day, but Pig is able to convey something that's so sweet and heartfelt. Um, and especially during the pandemic, Pig has come to the fore a lot more because I think people just need that. So, um, yeah, it depends on the day, but it'd be one or one or the other of those two. I think the recent strip where you characters broke the fourth wall with the balloon and yeah, yeah, he takes pig sees all the trouble of the world and just grabs a balloon and floats away. Yeah, yeah, I, I want to thank you. I like doing that. I, that one, I, I want to recapture that in another strip because I dropped the color out of it in the fantasy sequence and I only colored the balloon. And I think I was probably influenced by that movie you see as a kid. Remember that French film called The Red Balloon? Oh yes. Yeah, I think that was probably in my head. Stefan passed his cartoonist joins us beyond the mic. Stefan, how do you handle rejection? You had years of it. Yeah. Do you feel like you grew as a person from those times? Yeah, you you really that's something you gotta go you gotta grow very comfortable with because it's A, it's gonna happen a ton. But B, it's really important. Like um you build your success on those rejections. It doesn't look like it at the time, but those are the those are the building blocks. And success is frequently like the seeds of your destruction. So neither are what they look like at first. Because when you get success, you can get cocky and, you know, and then you think you can do anything and you start writing poorly. When you get rejected early on, it helps shape you and sharpen like your tools. And, you know, a lot of the rejection is wrong. A lot of like with books and stuff, you find that after a while, a lot of people, they just don't know what they're doing and they don't see something, you know, for 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 what it is so so it's kind of a dual-edged sword on the one hand rejection is good because it makes you better makes you try harder but on the other hand you have to be strong enough to know that maybe what you've written or done is ahead of its time so not not lose that which is good in it you know persevere i mean if you look through history the examples of people who were rejected for what they did will surprise you i think stravinsky i think it's rights of spring right of spring not a big classical music guy i think they like they got so mad they practically destroyed the theater like the audience i think <laughs> in the middle of them, they booed and walked out i remember that or pauline kale like walking out of was it uh, raiders of the lost Ark? or panning uh 2001 is one of the worst films she'd ever seen and now on the sight and sound poll, I think that's the number one movie ever made or number two or somewhere in there. Yes, you, you have to you have to retain that voice. Um, 
it's a fine balance between keeping your confidence and doing that which entertains you and also listening to the advice which is good and telling being able to tell the difference why are you proud to be a greek american i don't don't, that's a really good question i don't know i am proud um i think it's just inculcated in you when you're a kid you know the festivals the food the dancing it's beautiful there i've been a couple of times my family's from this tiny island called ikeria over by uh by turkey yeah we're we're a proud folk for sure i hear from greeks all the time it's time for one big question with Stefan Pastis beyond the mic. This one, this one scares me. Yeah, I'm listening. If if a phone goes dead, you know why. Stefan, how has your creations filled your heart with happiness, and what you want people to remember you for? Oh, that's a nice question. That is going to be really tough. Um, being able to do what you love is one of the greatest joys of life. Like if you can figure that out to make a living from what you love, you're going to be happy. So that's how it has filled my heart. I knew and I know I have a good life when Sunday night comes around and rather than dreading it because Monday's the next day, I look forward to Monday. I look forward to the work. If you can figure that out. You've, you've got it made. Uh, what I want to be remembered for is trying my best to do a strip that counted that was in the tradition of the strips that I loved edgy breaking some new ground different original all, all of that yeah because I wanted to give back what I got from those great strips and it's some other kid one day gets that to me, I will have succeeded. He draws to entertain himself, influenced by Letterman, and wants you to buy his books, including Trouble Town, at a local bookstore. We thank cartoonist Stefan Pastis for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. <laughs>